Take our Bibles this morning and go to two passages of Scripture. The one you're used to by now, Ecclesiastes, unless you're a guest. Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you're wondering where that book of relative obscurity exists in your Bibles. And then the book of Nehemiah. If you really want to put a bookmark over in Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at that text as well this morning. And um, if you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, just slip up your hand. The ushers will be glad to give you one, okay? Um, What we seek to do here for the remainder of our time uh, this morning is consider the scriptures, and I trust your hearts will be uh, encouraged by them today as we study, all right? We've gone through about a month, month's worth of introduction to this book. And uh, now what we're going to go through today is not an introduction to the book, but an introduction to the first chapter of the book. It needs its own background. It needs its own setup. We're going to give you an outline to the first chapter of the book, begin to get into the outline of this first chapter, uh, and then continue on with it, uh, study this book for the rest of the year, most likely. All right? Twelve chapters, and it takes you... Almost 52 weeks to do it. Yep. Um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully each week you'll leave with a little bit better understanding of who God is and how to live life, because the book is really about living life on purpose. And really, uh, chapter one is going to be discussing, especially verses one through eleven this week and next. It's going to be discussing really what are the roadblocks or the speed bumps to living life on purpose. What are those things in life, what are those thought processes really that we have a tendency to go through that keep us from living life intentionally in a way that pleases God. Right? So, you know, sometimes I say this is the best day of the week for me. You know, folks, it really is. And I hope in time it becomes the same for you. God has throughout his recorded history designated times of joyful celebration for his people. And long before uh, the New Testament church became the church and he gave us the Lord's Day where we gather together to worship and to celebrate, his Old Testament people, the Jews, had a calendar of celebrations. Certainly, uh, in the creation week, before sin even came into the world, the Lord gave his own time, his own entity, time to rest and to reflect upon what he had done. And he called it good after he reflected upon his creation. And he set a template for us that was carried over into the Mosaic Law, which was the Sabbath for the Jewish people, which became the Lord's Day for us. A time to... Transdispensationally, in other words, across the realms of time, find a way to stop, worship, be joyful, and celebrate. Even within that Old Testament Jewish calendar, there were festivals that God had given his people to be joyful and to celebrate. You're in Nehemiah chapter 8 already. You're familiar with this text if you've known the Bible for a while, but 
what we call this is a post-exile, a post-captivity, after-captivity text. Uh, the Jewish people have been kept in prison, really, by the Babylonian Empire for 70 years, and, and they're out of captivity now, and they're gathering together for the first time to hear the public reading of the word, which was really a scheduled thing in the Jewish calendar that they had not been able to do for 70 years. And so there's children born into captivity of the Jewish descent, and they're now being instructed and told about these regular patterns of time to celebrate God's word and to be joyful. And, and uh, they call some 50,000 people strong together at the water gate, and they open up the book of the law of, of Moses, and they read together for six straight hours, men, women, and children that could hear with understanding. And, and uh, the text records their response to the hearing of God's word in verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, translating it, to give the sense, they interpreted it, so they had to translate from one language to another. They had to interpret it, give the sense, and then they had to apply it so they all could understand the reading. The real simple outline of verse 8, translation, interpretation, application. All right, it's always a good presentation of God's word there. Then in verse number 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. See, their response to God's word was a response of conviction. They were overwhelmed by its influence in their hearts, their minds and their hearts, and, and it caused them to be convicted. And, and that's certainly a natural response of how Spirit-filled people hear God's word, but this particular time in the Jewish calendar was a time of celebration and joy, and the people are face down with their noses in the dirt, weeping in agony. And because the leaders, Nehemiah and others, know that this is a time that's to be a time of rejoicing. They said, don't mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Verse 10, then he said to them, go eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to declare a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Is, is, is what Nehemiah and Ezra and the leaders told the people to do sound remotely familiar to the way the first three sections of the book of Ecclesiastes finish? Do you remember how those first three or four sections finished? Solomon's conclusion was, go eat, drink, and be what? Be merry. Get up and go live life. Because when you live life, according to the conclusion of the whole book in chapter 12 and verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments, only living life with joy can be done when you know God, fear God, and live his word. What's really interesting here 
the festival that's discussed here in Nehemiah 8 was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tabernacles. And what's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, Old Testament Jewish history tells us that the book of Ecclesiastes was always read out loud publicly at the Feast of Tabernacles every time it was celebrated after Solomon wrote the book. So it was to be a book reminding the people to live life joyfully, to live life happily, go grab life and live it to the fullest. Just always make sure it's only done by faith as you grow in the word of God. The best way to enjoy life is to enjoy life with God. As a matter of fact, that's truly only the right way. It's the only way, if you will, to properly enjoy life, is to enjoy it with God according to his word. The Feast of Tabernacles is here. The festival discussed in Nehemiah chapter 8. You've heard the word, now this is the time of rejoicing. Let it have its work on your heart, but let it be a quick work, a quick and efficient work. Be convicted, but after you're convicted, know that grace overcomes sin. Get up and grow and go together and be joyful. Go eat and drink and give to those who have need. This is a time to celebrate. And at times, as you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's wisdom literature before us has oftentimes been read as this book of cynicism, this book of uh, overwhelming sobriety, overwhelming seriousness. And it's left there. It's really taught as the the book that's... uh, of how a cynic teaches you to live life, how how a critic teaches you to live life. And that's really not what it is when you understand it within its immediate context and extort context and so forth. It's a book, as we've learned last, the last two weeks, as God is our creator, sovereign, perfect judge, and supreme reality. How could the believer really live life persistently in a dark place, knowing who God is in this book and, and alone? And, and Solomon is writing at a time that follows his own personal departure from God and he's gone through a time of repentance here and returning to God and, and that's a great time of joy when you turn from sin and to God, isn't it? Amen. It's a great time of relief and gladness and there is joy now in his heart and he, and he writes I would ask you, have you ever been away from the Lord, even maybe recently and gotten your heart right with him and come back to him and experienced the relief? And a great joy that his grace has given you. Ecclesiastes is, we've already stated, read among the Jewish people of Old Testament times as joyful literature at a festival of joy. Every biblical holy day or holiday given to the Jewish people always had three aspects to it. Israel was to observe the holy day in the present, in order to remember God had 
done something overwhelmingly good for them in the past, while looking forward to some future prophetic purpose that was hidden within each festival. So they were to celebrate today over what God had done in the past with hope in the future, all with the disposition of joy. And this is true for their weekly observance of the Sabbath, as well as for their annual pilgrimage and the festivals of Passover and Pentecost, and again here, specifically tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish people, historians tell us, were to gather together in Jerusalem, not only to remember God's provision in the wilderness, but also to look forward to the promised messianic age when all nations will flow to this city to worship the Lord. So today, if you were a Jew and you were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles for today, I have been experiencing release from Egyptian captivity. I remember back, not only to that release, but spending time in temporary tents in the 40-year wilderness wanderings and God's faithfulness to us as we lived in those tents. And we celebrate it not only with a look at the present and the past, but to the future. There will be a day where King Jesus will sit on his throne and we will worship him. This is a day of joy. This is a day of gladness. The Feast of Tabernacles was for all people. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 12 teaches us that. Tabernacles festival is unique that the Gentile nations around the Jewish people were invited to participate. I find it interesting here that when Solomon writes, as we said a couple weeks ago, he never uses the word Yahweh or Lord. He uses the name God, which would have been known not only in Jerusalem, but also to the outside nations that surrounded Jerusalem as creator. Creator. And you're invited to come and to, to watch our festival of joy and gladness and, and to know that there's something that's changed us. Many shall see it in fear. The Lord's given us a new song. And then they will trust in the Lord by what they see in us. And this is a feast for all people. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, when Solomon later dedicated his temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, he asked the Lord to hear the prayers of any foreigners that would come there to pray. Foreigners that would be born again that would come to celebrate the faithfulness of God in their present, their past, and they, what they look to in the future. Again, a time of celebration. It may be a, a surprise to some of you, but Jesus kept the Feast of Tabernacles as well. And on the last great day of the feast, in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38... Jesus stood in the temple and he cried out these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So even the Lord Jesus, of course, understood the purpose for the festival of tabernacles. It was a time of celebration. It was a time of great joy. And basically what he's saying here in the Gospel of John is there is really no joy in life apart from me. If you really want to live, you've got to know him who can only give eternal life. You've got to know Jesus, the Son of God. And Solomon's saying the same thing. As his book is read at the Feast of Tabernacles annually after its writing, during the time of his preservation under the New Testament, Solomon's crying out the same thing that Jesus cried out in the temple. Life only makes sense when you live it by faith in God. As you live it by faith according to the word of God which is the will of God. Nehemiah and Ezra and the leaders of Israel are saying the same thing weeks after captivity at the water gate in Nehemiah chapter 8. Get up, celebrate, because your life only makes sense as you go out and grab it with all the strength that you can as you live it by God and according to his word. The most visible symbol of the Feast of Tabernacles is the small booth the Israelites are commanded to dwell in for eight days of the feast, according to Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43. Jewish families built these makeshift huts on their patios and balconies. And they decorated them with colorful fruit, ribbons, and pictures. Some families eat their meals in this hut during the festival and even sleep there at night. And historians tell us that these flimsy booths are a reminder to Israel that they once dwelled in temporary shelters during their 40 years of wilderness wandering, totally dependent on the Lord. And they were always reminded that God is faithful and he continues to provide all that we need as we walk upright before him. And many non-Messianic Jews, many Jews that don't know Jesus, still practice the Feast of Huts today. I have a physician of mine, my orthopedic surgeon, that still practices the Feast of Tabernacles. And every year, on his back porch, they set up a temporary hut. And his family remembers the faithfulness of Yahweh in their lives, the faithfulness of God, Elohim today and in their past, and they look forward to a kingdom where he's going to come and reign as the son of David. And sadly, they forget that there had to be a cross before a kingdom. And so their hearts are no longer still surrendered to Jesus Christ and salvation as they still look for a coronation. Zechariah foretold of a time when all the nations would ascend to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in his minor prophet book, chapter 14 and verse 16. It's interesting to me that even in the eternal time, this is going to be a festival that we'll all be called on to keep. 
It'll be a time of great joy and gladness as we worship the God of faithfulness. Throughout the Messianic age, the entire world will celebrate this feast because it will mark the return of Jesus to earth. But for now, Christians flocking to Jerusalem celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a powerful statement of faith demonstrating that we believe the millennial kingdom of Jesus is coming. So, I hesitate to use this analogy, but as we journey through Ecclesiastes, let's understand its author would have us view the spiritual cup of life as half full rather than half empty. Sin affects our whole world, doesn't it? Our personal sin affects us. The sins of others against us affect us. And wouldn't you agree that sin in general affects us? So thinks about, think about that, if you will, before we go on. Three ways that sin affect us, affects us. Romans chapter 8 says, Even the rocks cry out for release from the effects of sin on creation. Do you remember that when we were going through Romans? Rocks never sin. Rocks can't sin. Inanimate things can't sin, but they can be affected by sin, can't they? Have you ever been wounded by somebody else? Have you, has your life ever been turned upside down and ravaged by somebody else? All of us would have to answer yes in various degrees, some lightly and some quite severely, like in a life-altering kind of way. The sins of others can affect us. Right? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Has your own sin ever affected your life? Well, certainly that could be the case. Solomon's writing as a man that had been living under the influence of sin in all three levels. He had uniquely and exquisitely experienced the, the, the hardship of the consequences of sin in all three levels. He's come to a time of personal repentance now. He's still affected by sin overall. He's still affected by how the sins of others affect him, but he's been released from the agony of his own sin, and he looks at life, and he looks at life actually quite joyfully by God's grace, you see. So even though the world is affected by sin, and even though others intentionally and sometimes severely and grossly affect our lives, somehow... He comes to the reality of joy. 17 times, my friends, in 12 chapters, Solomon says life is to be intentionally lived with joy. 17 times. Our God would want us to live life with joy, and that's why he says again, the conclusion of the whole matter is fear God and keep his commandments. That's the only way you're going to live life with joy, even though you're still adversely affected by sin generally, and there's still people who haunt your lives with their own sin that they've committed against you. Joy can be found only because God's grace is omnipotent. That is the only explanation 
What Paul said in Romans 6 is true. Where sin did abound, grace did what? Megos is the Greek word there. Much, mega, much more abounds. God's grace is the only source that we have through him, according to his word, to live life that's affected by sin and the sins of others against you with joy. That's it. That's it. The word of God, Ecclesiastes, is proclaimed at these festivals to remind people of that truth. It's a fundamental part of the foundation of our Christian existence on this earth. Grace, 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 grace. There really is no other answer to living life joyfully than to have unmerited help from heaven to do so. And again, our author is acquainted with the personal and global effects of his own sin. But grace, the grace of God transforms, it renews, and it supplies undeserved divine ability to stand up again and serve our God, who sent his only son to overcome the consequences of all levels of sin and to lead us to joyful living. God's grace is available to all men of any age, isn't it? 1 John chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 teaches us that. God came not just to forgive your sin, but the sins of the whole world, the whole cosmos. All men of all ages, this grace, this opportunity to live life with joy has been given. You say, well, Pastor Tim, what about those souls senselessly dismembered, murdered, and snuffed out of this world into the presence of God even before they have a chance to breathe a breath outside their mom's womb. Grace has covered them, hasn't it? Grace has covered them. What about the male two-year-old slaughtered in an attempt to snuff out the life of the Christ child? Grace has covered them. What about the children who have been violated by wicked adults in various forms? God's grace covers them. What about teens who have allowed just one tease of a friend to get them to try an opioid or an addictive drug? Can God's grace help them? What about a college student who has an immoral body count posted on their dorm wall. Can God's grace help them? What about a married man who's allowed himself to be lured away by a seductress? Can God's grace help him? What about to a hardened, drunk war hero who has drowned his violent memories of battle in the bottle. Can God's grace help him overcome that PTSD? Grace can save. Grace can restore. 
Grace can cause all of us to stand up again. And grace compels us to live overwhelmed by what our Savior has done to himself incur the most violent effects of sin on his own body and the tree of Calvary. It was the Father who punished his Son so that you might live. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What father would do that? So that the world affected by grace, generally by others against you and by your own, could all be influenced by the grace of God. The grace of God heals on every level. It restores on every level. And the God of heaven's son knew that. And that's why his sacrifice was necessary. And Solomon writes to us this book of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom, my friends. Wisdom is to teach us to take God's word and know how to give it hands and feet. We've got to know how to live. The only way we can live is by understanding grace and how it's abounded much more than the effects of sin. And through Christ Jesus, who incurred the greatest violence, we can know that grace to live with joy. Our author has turned back to grace. And it's a great time of joy in his life. One author said, so the mood of Ecclesiastes is one of delight. With the prospect of living and enjoying all the goods of life, once man has come to fear God and keep his commandments. So back to our first chapter of Ecclesiastes. We divided all 12 chapters into four different sections. You can go back and kind of listen to those sermons when you have time. So now we need to divide up the first section of our book into its proper sections. And there are going to be three. Remember that the first section of four of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is found in chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2 and verse 26. All right? And we read an author's description of that first section, and it reads like this. Even though man seeks every way possible to please himself and make his life happy, he is powerless to make himself completely happy. That's really the synopsis of the first section of four of Ecclesiastes. Even though man seeks every way possible to please himself and to make his life happy, he's powerless to make himself completely happy. And I would just ask you, let's take about seven seconds and just kind of absorb that brief overview of this section. Man is completely powerless to make himself completely happy. Remember the adverbs there? Completely is used twice. He's completely powerless to make himself completely happy. Man can make himself happy temporarily, right? The scriptures even tell us that. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but. Solomon says elsewhere, there is a way that seems right unto man, but. 
The end of that way is destruction. Man can make himself temporarily happy. He can never make himself completely happy. Because he himself is incomplete without a savior. The best authors, including Walter Kaiser on Ecclesiastes, take this section of scripture and divide it up in a really helpful way. So we take this first section of chapter 1, verses 2, through chapter 2 and verse 26, and the first part of that section is really chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Verse 1 is really Solomon introducing himself as the author. Verse 2 we're going to handle in just a little bit, which is just a little bit more of an introduction to the first section of the major section. And verse 3 as well, but verse 4 through 11. And verses 4 through 11 just really teaches this. The restlessness of life is real. The restlessness of life is real. How do we live with joy through the restlessness of life? And we're going to take even those verses, verses 4 through 11, and we're going to divide them up into four different ways, okay? So we've got four sections of the book. The first section is divided up into three ways. All right. The first section of those three ways, we're going to divide up into four ways. We're going to preach those the next couple weeks. Verses 4 through 11, the next couple weeks, we're going to discuss the restlessness of life and how to, how to live through it with joy, right. which really includes making sure uh, that we overcome the philosophical speed bumps to living life on purpose, and we'll get to this here in just a little bit. Okay? The second section of this first section is verses 12 through chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 12 through chapter 2 and verse 11. And this section is really about the pleasures of life being tested. The restlessness of life is illustrated. And number two, the pleasures of life are tested. And the third section of this first section is chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 23. And it's the purposes of life that are examined. The purposes of life that are examined. So as we utilize Alva J. McLean's outline to the book of Romans, we'll do the same here with Walter Kaiser for those who study during the week and follow along with me through this book. There's a certain section of you, every time we announce a book, you all go out and buy books to study with me. And I think that's really, really cool. I think that's an Acts 17 Berean kind of thing to do. All right? Uh, and when you study the Word of God and you mine out its truth, you come across some really good authors who are able to take its truth and practically divide it up, which really helps our learning. And so that's what we'll do here through this first section. So, each of these sections is written to build towards the conclusion of the whole first section, which is verses 24 to 26. Okay? So remember we said the announcement of the authors, verse 1. Verses 2 and 3, we're going to deal with in just a moment. Right, which is kind of an introduction to the first section. Well, the conclusion to the first section is verses 24 to 26. So let's go back there, even though we've read it, to remind ourselves of what we're to do with life. Let's read it again. So go to chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. Let's go to the end before we go back to the beginning and remind ourselves of some things. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. 
The text says, For there is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink, and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he might give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. I'm going to read this text now for you. You'll have to listen because you're not going to be able to follow along exactly. I'm going to read for the, a literal translation of the Hebrew text now of what these verses are saying. Now, if you'll look at your Bibles as I'm reading these verses, and I'll announce the verse before I read it, you'll see some interesting changes. Certainly the general truth of the text is in your translation. This is from the Hebrew to the English, and I think it'll You'll hear some interesting things. Verse 24. There is not a good in man that he should be able to eat, drink, or get satisfaction from his work. Even this, I realized, was from the hand of God. Do you see a difference there? It's fundamental to the understanding of the whole book. Man cannot completely, of himself, or ultimately, bring happiness to himself. So, there is not a good in man that he should be able to eat, drink, or get satisfaction from his work. Verse 25. Apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? So that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Nobody. Apart from God, it's impossible. Verse 26, for to the man who pleases him, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping up in order to give it to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and chasing after the wind. So our conclusion to the first section helps us understand the whole of the section. Any of the blessings of good enjoyed in life come from God. And all good things can only be truly enjoyed and used properly if we understand they come from his hand. And men and women who do not have the ability within themselves to extract enjoyment from life or from any of its most mundane functions, such as eating, drinking, or earning a paycheck, only God can give those to them who come to believe on him. So yes, for those who fear God and keep his commandments, you can eat, drink, and be merry. Quite frankly, you only, you're the only ones who can with joy. So Solomon sets out in chapter 1 to help us keep our thoughts on a positive track because there will be speed bumps along the way regarding how we view life that can unnecessarily distract us from enjoying life to the fullest that God's given us. So, how do we enjoy life as a gift from God? Well, we have to understand that the restlessness of life can distract us from living life with joy, so we need to begin by investigating what are those joy robbers, if you will, 
those joy thieves in life. We've got to be able to identify the thief so we can avoid the thief, so we can live life with joy. Well, before we get into verses 4 and following, let's look at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Remember, verse 1's the author, so let's cascade down to verse number 2. By way of introduction to the first section, we've got to understand something on the way in that we just understood on the way out at the conclusion. Solomon says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. And you say, how in the world, Pastor Tim, can you say that this is not a pessimist writing? This is not a Debbie Downer kind of guy writing, right? This guy sounds like he's got manic depression, right? Well, you have to understand the word vanity and how it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes and how it's used in the whole Old Testament and its correlation in the New Testament before you can really make a conclusion about the author. You may have a translation in your lap that actually says this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is useless. All is vanity. If you see the word useless in your translation, uh, I'm not saying your translation's bad, but that's an unfortunate usage. That's a misunderstood usage of this word within the context of the book. What is Solomon saying here? We cannot say that the book was written, was written to encourage us by faith to fear God and keep his commandments so that we can live every part of life with joy and say that the word joy is used 17 times in the text, either noun or verb, to tell us that really the whole of our life is to be defined by living it with joy if we really understand grace and then say life's useless. There is nothing pointless about the grace of God. Are you with me? There is never anything pointless about the grace of God. The grace of God is incredibly intentional. God's grace was intentional with you, wasn't it? We love him because he decided to first what? Love us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Among many other texts that tell us what God's intentionality was by his grace. Your life is not useless. It will never be meaningless. If you've been saved by grace, on the other hand, if you don't read this book with the eyeglasses of faith, if you will, you will live life, and you will go kind of find meaning in life, and you will live many good things in life, and still come up wondering, what's the purpose in all this? And you'll say, I've done it all. I've been terminally degreed. I'm making all the money I have. I'm living my dream job. I've got a family. I've got my dream house. I've got it all. But, so what? 
If you read this book without eyes of faith, you will see life as meaningless or useless. But if you live it with eyes of faith and read it with eyes of faith, it's the opposite of that. You live life with great purpose and great intention. Okay? So vanity is used a number of ways in the Old Testament. Even our book, it can be translated as empty or a sorry thing. In chapter 8 and verse 14, even a senseless thing. You have to study the words, with how they're used within the context of where you're reading and then the whole of the book if you properly going to rightly divide the word of truth. All is vanity of verse 2 refers to, as one author said, the activities of life rather than being a blanket declaration of the total uselessness of life in the universe. In celebration of God's goodness in joy, he's just saying life is short. Life is really short. Sounds like James 4, right? Your life is but a vapor. And within the context of James, I find it really interesting because James author, James recipients of his letter are Jewish people, right? And he's telling them, listen, your life is pointless if you're going to get up, go buy, sell, and get gain, and you're going to do it without considering God. Remember, your life is but a vapor. If you go and live life in practical atheism, you're going to make your plans without doing it by faith. In a relationship with God, yes, your life is going to be useless. But since life is short, we have a short time to live life very intentionally, with joy, and it's all possible by grace. So how do we live life on purpose? We live it knowing God and his commandments so we can genuinely enjoy the good yet fleeting things in life. The Bible says the world is passing away and the lust thereof, but who, he that does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Okay? So how do we live life on purpose? We live it knowing God and his commandments, knowing God first and then his commandments, so that we can genuinely enjoy the good, yet fleeting things in life. There was an old bumper sticker years ago when I was growing up as a kid, and it said this, life is short, play hard. Do you ever remember seeing that? Life is short, play hard. Well, we know what the world means by play hard, right? Back then, I knew what it meant when they said play hard. I think the Christians could have a bumper sticker, and it could say, life is short, fear God, and know how to truly enjoy it. Life is short, fear God and know how to truly enjoy it. So as we live life with the purpose of knowing and living joyfully, what are some potential purpose destroyers, if you will? One author calls these things purpose destroyers. I call them joy thieves or joy robbers, if you will, that we might face. We took our whole first section and divided it up into four parts. Now, let's take this first portion and do the same. We took the whole book in four parts. We took the first section in three. Now let's take this first section in four. You say, Pastor Tim, why do you keep outlining the detail? It's just how my brain works. I'm sorry, I think structurally like that. And within all the pieces put together in a proper structure, it helps me understand the whole. So if your brain doesn't work my mind, I'll apologize. 
Um, but if I wasn't able to explain it like this, I don't know if I'd have anything to preach. And that would maybe bum you out. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, anyway, so here we go. What can become the living life on purpose destroyers? They all have to do with governing what we know and how we think about what we know, which is all tied to wisdom. I'm going to give you these four potential purpose destroyers, and I'm going to pray. And we're going to start to get through them next week, because I like to, as best I can, finish on time, which is no later than 11.35 for me if you're a guest. And I have finished before 11.35 in the previous three weeks, to which no one has said thank you. <laughs> but man, you go past 11.35, man, the floodgates open, and pastor's really long-winded. All right, just wanted to say that. No self-esteem issues here. Verse 3, you ready? First potential purpose destroyer or joy thief or joy robber. Guard yourself against the life's not worth it viewpoint. Guard yourself against the life's not worth it view of life. That's verse 3. Okay? Number two, this is verses four through seven. Be careful not to view life as senseless duplication. Senseless repetition. Verse number eight, number three. Make sure you're not giving the wrong value to life's experiences. Make sure you're not giving the wrong value to life's experiences. In verses 9 through 11, don't view life as a senseless remake or redo or rerun. Don't view life as a senseless remake. So verse 3, guard yourselves against life's not worth it or what one would call zero profit view of life. Verses 4 through 7, be careful not to view life as senseless duplication. Verse 8, make sure you're not giving the wrong value to life's experiences. And finally, verses 9 through 11, don't view life as a senseless remake. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're certainly going to need your wisdom as we continue to journey through this wisdom book. Help us to take away today, though, Lord, that when we've heard the word, it should influence us unto greater joy by your grace. So may we leave this place happier than when we came because we've heard from your book in Jesus' name. Amen.